Welcome to the dark forest. Jackie and her pals will never bore us. Shameless confessions about our obsession will make us laugh and smile. So let's explore the dark forest and dark down for a while. Hi, this is Jackie Cation, and you are about to listen to the Dork Forest since 2006. And it is on iTunes, of course, where you may have received it. You may have gotten it at dorkforest.com. Feel free to review it on iTunes. It, we are part of the All Things Comedy Network, allthingscomedy.com, where my new hour special, This Will Make an Excellent Horcrux, is available for $5 download. Knock yourselves out. My website, JackieCation.com, has a player if you want to just listen to it uh, and you don't want to do iTunes. And JackieCation.com has everything. It has my stand-up schedule. It has a merch page where you can get Dork Forest t-shirts and even order a Dork Forest hoodie if you like. All of the shirts are made in America because while I'm willing to wear clothing that are made by toddlers, I'm unwilling to sell clothing made by toddlers. The hoodie, special ordered for some reason, still made in the Philippines. I don't know why. Possibly because they're super cozy, and I don't sell that many of them, but I should work on that. Anyway, there's a chance to donate to the Dork Forest. If you enjoy the Dork Forest, feel free to donate. A hundred bucks a year makes you a super fan, and you could do that in one chunk of a hundred bucks, or you could break it up however you want, because I have not made that easy for you. It would be $8.33 a month if you want to do it. You could also just order stuff if you want Dork Forest t-shirts or CDs or DVDs. I have three CDs out and one DVD, and you can order all of them. Uh, you could order a T-shirt, you could order a hoodie, and that will also support the show, and I totally appreciate that. Yeah, just so you know, the DVD of The Horcrux is Friday Second Show. That is the video. And the CD is Saturday Second Show. I don't know. I didn't videotape that one, but I like that set better, so that is the CD. The DVD is approximately uh, 56 minutes long, and the CD... About 40, 48. So they're different sets, but they're the same material. And it's uh, it's weird, but I like it. The credits. Let's credit the people that make this show possible, quite honestly. We have Mike Rickberg, who sang the intro song and composed the intro song and sings it with his girlfriend, Sarah Cohen. And he will sing Mexican Hat Dance at the end of this. The audio. The audio is fixed every week, and the teasers are created by... Mr. Patrick Brady, Mr. Patrick Brady, friend of the show. Vilmos does my website, JackieCation.com. So if you're looking for someone to do your website, go to JackieCation.com, scroll down, and click on that link. All right, let's do this. Enjoy. At RBC Wealth Management, social responsibility starts at the top. As a part of the Royal Bank of Canada, RBC has been recognized among the world's financial, social, and environmental corporate leaders. Our sense of responsibility extends to our reputation for putting clients' interests first. My personal commitment is to help you achieve your financial goals by also considering sustainable and responsible investing strategies. To learn more, visit www.darlacashian.com. RBC Wealth Management, a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC. Member NYSE FINRA SIPC. Hello and welcome to the Dork Forest, you guys. We are at Acon 25, Dallas, Texas, here at the Hotel Anatoly. Please clap. Wow. Oh, my God, it worked. That much noise from that many people. I'm impressed. <laughs> Who knew it would work? And uh, and it totally worked. I'm sitting here with uh, Helen McCarthy. You are a dork luminary. 
a luminary of the dork forest, as far as I'm concerned. Helen McCarthy, are you on the Twitter? Of course. And what is your Twitter handle? Well, my Twitter handle is very complicated. I tried all the possible combinations of my name and my initials, but there are just too many Helen McCarthy's in this world. Most of them much more talented and much better paid than I am, which is annoying. <laughs> so on Twitter, I am Tweetheart4711. That's right. You're the Tweetheart. Mm-hmm. I am Tweetheart of the Forces. You're the UK Tweetheart. Yep. You're now America's Tweetheart, because here we are. Here we are indeed. Indeed. Now, uh, so what was the number on the end of it? Tweet- 4711. 4711. Is that, does that mean something? There's a deep significance in that. <laughs> uh, the, no, really. There's a, an 18th century cologne recipe that's produced actually in the town of Cologne, which is numbered 4711. On, on its, its original patents. We have begun as we mean to go forth. I approve of that story. Historical smells that don't turn your stomach. Excellent. Well played, Helen McCarthy. Uh, I am so excited. Uh, here's how we met. I don't know if you remember how we met. Well, I remember how we met. Wait, what's your version? We met at breakfast, yep. and we actually hadn't spent the night together beforehand, and this is so rare for me. <laughs> you are working it, lady. Well played, well played. Are you a single lady? It depends. Okay. I, I have been devotedly... Is it complicated? No, it's not complicated oh, good. at all. I have been devotedly attached to the love of my life for 33 years now. Okay. That's the person who's responsible for getting me into anime. But I always think that in human life, there's a continuum of everything. And therefore, I'm always open to offers. Okay. Oh, you're always available uh, to possibly receive from the universe, let's say. What the universe gives, I accept. All right. I like it. I'm confused. I, all right. No, I was no. just wondering if you were getting laid, is I guess oh, what I was right. really... I, I'm, I'm getting laid at home, and I'm getting laid occasionally elsewhere. Abroad? You can complain about that. And no one Abroad can... is what I really like. Yes. Yeah. There's a man with a giant sword who knows he does not belong in the dark forest. <laughs> and yet, kind of does well, belong in the dark forest. doesn't he? He wants something better. <laughs> he, he aspires to something beyond. He does aspire to something beyond. It's, uh... I mean, just being a... <laughs> oh right which dirty movies it's Funimation after this right which is uh 18 and over they're short animated um things that people submit and they're either filthy or super super uh dark right a little mean little you know two got to a man and a child walk into the forest and the child says this is very scary and the man says you think it's scary? I gotta walk out of here alone. So, uh, uh, that sort of super, it's, uh, they're a little incesty. Actually, they can the, be. The, the, the sad thing I think about, about most porn, but definitely about anime porn, is that most of it is so fucking tedious. Well played. I mean, it's the same thing. What is that thing? I, I, so that I don't have to sit through it. Well, it's, <laughs> what I'm saying. essentially it's guy meets girl and it's almost always guy meets girl unless you're in, in, in BL. What's BL? Boys love. Boys love. Oh, yeah. boy on boy crime? Boy yeah. on boy love? Boy, we like boy All right. on boy. All right. It, it's essentially someone meets someone, someone fucks someone, someone fucks some more. Then the milkman gets involved. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just very Some sort serious. of third party. It's, UPS yeah. shows up with a box and he's like, there's yeah. something for you in the box and it's his dick. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I've only heard about porn. I haven't watched a lot of porns. I've only heard 25 Nobody years. Nobody actually watches a lot of porn. Most people go to sleep after the first 10 minutes. 
Oh, that's <laughs> that is also what I've been told is that nobody's seen an entire porn. No. Okay. All right. Because mm-hmm. what what about closure? What about the wedding? Like a Harlequin romance, right? Yeah. I don't know if you ever read any Harlequin. Have you read any Harlequin romances? You're not missing a whole lot. Uh, the, uh, when I was 12, 13, used to read a lot of Harleys. That's what I called them. Yeah. Called them Harleys. And, uh, but the, uh, uh, at the end of it, they, uh, they, there's a lot of, there's, they kiss. They get married and there's some kissing. Barbara Cartland. She was another one who would do that. Oh yeah. And, uh, she, there was, the kissing was like the last fucking paragraph. And, uh, you're like, I, I'm 13. I need some actual, is there any physicality at all? Yeah. I, I need some information here. Right. I need and something I can use. You are not getting any from a Barbara Cartland novel. Well, to be fair, some of the later Cartland shaded a little more into experience, but, but no, she, she wasn't of the era that believed she should be telling you what to do. To, to her credit, she was non-prescriptive. What do you mean? She didn't tell you what you ought to do and with whom. Okay. She left it to your imagination. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Like, who, after they got married, was it, was it man, was it BL? Well, you have to remember that a Victorian household had an awful lot of servants in it. Oh. I wish I knew what that meant. I've spent the entire weekend doing that. I wish I knew why they were laughing. The thing is, if if you marry into a really, really rich family, it has all kinds of resources of which you can then avail yourself. Okay. Oh, some loosey goosey action happening. Yeah, husbands, brothers, stable oh. hands, footmen, you know the kind Upstairs, of downstairs. Yeah. Okay. Anywhere All right. you like. Alright. Anywhere you, anywhere. See, because what I remember, do you remember when we met? It, it was at breakfast. Yes. And, um, I don't know who I was talking to. And I mentioned Georgette Hire. And someone asked me who she was. And I said, she's sort of the poor man's Jane Austen. And you turned around and said, Georgia hires the poor man's no one. Yes. And then I was like, please be on the dork forest. Yeah, my, and, no, my, my, my fellow writers are always worth defending, but, but she's someone that I have loved since I was nine years old and read my first novel by her. She's a Regency novelist, um, as, as you say, not Jane Austen, but a wonderful Regency novelist who is witty, um, humane, compassionate, right sharp as a knife, understands how to plot, doesn't waste anybody's time. Yeah, these are, I mean, seriously, just as novels, I like her better than Jane Austen, only because they're tighter. They're just, she, she's the, the, the arc on them, they're about 220, which is a nice length for a novel that you want to be sitting around reading, uh, in four days, if you take your time, and, and don't skim. And I've never understood why they haven't been filmed. Yeah, they would be the... So... Yeah, like E.M. Forster. Am I saying that yeah. correct? Is that yeah. right? I'm pronouncing that? Yeah. Room with a view. Yeah. Uh, that type I of mean, thing. they would be so popular on TV because they have the best heroes and the sparkiest, spunkiest, silliest heroines. Yeah, the heroines are, uh, they're usually very smart and they're not, they're not like, they're not lame in any no. way, shape or form. She doesn't have a lame character in any of her books. The, the worst of her novels is that one, I think it's the Conquistador. Yes. But it's because I don't get it. It's like it's this dense historical fiction set in Spain and in England, and it's just gothic. Well, the 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 trouble with the conquistador is is that that um, she was in love with early history. Her favorite era was the 14th century in England. The last book she wrote, which she never finished, was called My Lord John, and was set in in that era. But it wasn't the milieu that suited her best. Many of us as writers have things we wish we could. The things we wish we were good at. And she really, really wanted to be good at that kind of historical fiction. And I'm not saying that she was bad at it. She was just so supernaturally brilliant at the Regency romance 
but really it was all we resent her doing anything <laughs> right that is actually that is super because she loved you could clearly tell that she loved the era and she her history was dead on and she knew all the extraneous weirdo personalities in all of regency england and uh and she had a knowledge of the political history where the regent himself sounded like a mess of oh, a human a being. Yeah. And he was just like, nah, I'm gonna build this weird. He created the idea of a folly, mm-hmm. which is that, is just, I'm gonna build a bridge over a hill. There's no river there, but I just, when I look out the window, I wanna see a bridge. Yeah. And you're like, there's no to, river there. used to do things like, oh, well, I've got this really untidy old gothic ruin in, in my garden, so I'm gonna pull it down and spend a lot of money on building a nice modern fake gothic ruin. Exact dead the on. Place, yeah. yeah. They were mad. They were the, all crazy. Out of their minds. Except for that I was once at the uh, in Delphi mm-hmm. in Greece and I thought I was at the Oracle. I don't think I was. I don't know where I was, but uh what are it was ruins, right? And there was an American businessman who was also going through these ruins with me and he said, "You know the weird thing about this is they know what it looked like, but they don't fix it." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that is the weird thing. That that's it. My, my my husband works for the royal household. And um, he occasionally has cause to go up to Windsor Castle and tells me that there there is a wall with scratches on it that are scored through. And people ask what they are. And if the people who ask are not American, they say, that's a tally of every American who asks us why they built the castle so close to the damn airport. <laughs> yeah, that that's a pity. Yeah, they're almost running out of wall. <laughs> Wow, it just makes me proud. Anyway, um. Well, you don't need to know history, do you? No. I mean, you don't have much of it yet, so you know what? Right, we're just babies. Yeah. We're babies. Infant empire. Except, an infant empire. Except for that when you look at the Australians, I always, one of my favorite things about the Australians is that if you tell them, like, they should apologize to the aboriginals, for example, the Australians are like, we don't want to. And then someone will go, yeah, but we should. And you go, ah, fine. We're yeah. sorry. And uh, Americans are like, we don't want to. And then that is the end of the conversation, sadly. Yes, yes. And uh, it would be nice if, like, the sort of the super, you know, angry sort of, I don't know if it's right wing or even super left wing. They're like, man, that's the way it ought to be, man. Yeah. That's what happened. Well, in, in, in fact, the Aboriginal people of Australia are going to be the only people around after the nuclear holocaust because they'll be the only people who know how to survive it. So. They'll oh. have the last laugh on all of us. Oh, because they can, they, they know how to survive in the middle of Australia? Yeah, they know how to survive in the middle of this baking hot environment with nothing to eat and no water and absolutely nowhere to shelter. <laughs> They'll be fine. They might be, they might be. Have you ever seen, I don't know why I'm digressing, but have you ever seen a movie, a, t- a television why program? Not digress? Let's do it. Let's weed off into Survivor Man. Uh, there's a TV show called Survivor Man, Canadian oh. dude. He's a Canadian man who goes, brings his own three camera setup into the wilderness and then he gives himself a week to he drops himself in the middle of nowhere and then uh and then gets himself out of the situation gets to the rendezvous and there was one place where he was in the desert and uh we're watching it with a uh, a friend who was mexican and he was he was like i have to eat scorpions or something like that and uh, she was like no there's a cactus that's edible right behind you why aren't you eating the... Yeah, but he's Canadian. They don't have cacti in Canada. <laughs> well, I have to have protein somehow. Let's eat scorpions. Let's have a half a dozen of these. Actually, be, being Canadian, I, I think he'd, he'd have real problems eating anything alive because he'd spent so long apologizing for <laughs> and asking if it was convenient at the Aww. moment. Is it okay? Is this, are you guys all right? You guys all right? Yeah, I'll, I love Canadians. I, 
Of course, Canada is still part of the British Empire, uh, voluntarily. Voluntarily. Yes, absolutely voluntarily. Mm-hmm. And, and we make allowances for the French part because we've been making allowances to the French for several <laughs> yeah. I had a, a Canadian, uh, dork on the dork forest. I had someone who was a, an American who loves Canadian politics and Canadian history. And he explained that eventually it was the British Empire who said, no, you guys seriously have to move out. Yeah. And we just, we, we just, need uh, the room. we need, <laughs> we're just, uh, we don't have time. I mean, no, you actually don't have to ask us to do anything. You can just do things. You're your own country. Mm-hmm. Go forth. And it was like 1952, yeah. which is very sad. Yeah. I think they like the outfits. Yeah. I, th- I, th- I think they do. But, yeah. but then it's, it's not nearly as bad as Swiss womanhood. Swiss women didn't get the vote till the mid 1990s. What? Uh, Switzerland? Yeah. Wait, next to Austria and, and, yeah. and Holocaust money? Yeah. All right. All so, right. No, Swiss women didn't get the vote till the mid-1990s, and some Swiss men allegedly said they'd never needed the vote because no Swiss man would ever be stupid enough to vote in any way that didn't suit his wife. Oh, there you go. That's just good writing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely. <laughs> now, okay, so you have written 10 nonfiction books about the history of anime. Twelve now. All right. Yeah. I sadly have read none of them, oh. and I've seen Dragon Ball Z. You have that pleasure still to come. Exactly. That's what I like to think. That's because now I get to learn about it. So anime and manga and manga. Okay. All right. They they are together because manga came first. Manga definitely came first, just as comic books came before cartoons in America. Okay. Um, because manga was the, the cheapest and most readily available form of entertainment that was popular with all levels of society in Japan from a very early stage. But modern manga is quite a different thing. Until, um, until really Japan opened up to the West, uh, manga were satirical pictures, um, you know, popular pictures, cheap cult pictures, the sort of entertainment that yeah, some porn. Okay. A bit of porn. Right. Um, but also pin-ups of popular actors, views of famous scenes, uh, the kind of things you buy as souvenirs on your holidays. You know. Okay. Here's a, here's a picture of a famous landmark that I went to see. Okay. So if you were the sort that wanted to swank about how far you traveled, yeah. you'd pay for the walls of your house with beautiful woodcut prints of the 101 temples of the Shikoku Circuit or whatever. And, and that oh, was yeah, manga? And that, that, was, that was considered manga. But okay. Because manga as a, as a term was coined in probably the early 1700s. Great oh. American scholar Adam Kern locates it first in 1728 in a novel by Japan's first professional novelist. But it doesn't start having the meaning that we give it today until you get into um, really the mid-1870s. Oh, really? Like, what was it? Were people bringing it back to the West in the 1870s? Or before that, I mean, my proudest story about this, my, my new book, which I'm going to plug now, shame. Please do. It's called A Brief History of Manga, and it's out <laughs> on the 20th of June. Okay. And it's a very tiny book. It's an extremely short book, but it oh. is one of the best historical surveys you're going to see. I don't believe in modesty unless it works for me. Right. There's, um, and there's no reason to, because you're clearly available. Yeah, I'm uh, so available. <laughs> and the other great thing about this book, it's, it's, it's both easy and cheap. Okay. That's, that's my favorite bit of the songs of the great Dolly Parton. Apart from me and little Andy, which of course is, is untouchable. Sure. It's the wonderful <laughs> line in Rhinestone. How many of you know that Dolly Parton and Sylvester Stallone starred together in a musical film? 
I was, yeah. Rhinestone. Rhinestone. Fabulous movie. And there's a wonderful <laughs> line in a song that they do as a duet called Stay Out of My Bedroom, which goes, I may be easy, but at least I ain't cheap. Okay. Wait. This, this book is both easy and cheap. <laughs> and it's called A Brief History it's of Manga. A Brief History of Manga. Manga. And it starts, um, it, well, there's a preamble with, with the stuff we've already discussed about the very early years and, and Adam Kern's discovery. But then it starts in 1861 when a young Englishman called Charles Wergman decides to move to Japan from China, where he's been a correspondent for the Illustrated London News. Because China's starting to get pretty safe and boring. You know, the opium wars are settling down. They aren't actually killing the English <laughs> in such quantities anymore. And for a young newsman, it's not an exciting place to be. So Charlie moves to Japan with his commission from the Illustrated London News in his back pocket. But any of you who've ever worked journalism will know that a regular journalistic stipend is usually not what you wish it would be. No. no. Yes. Um, livable wage is not what it is, really. No, absolutely. Even in a country as cheap as Japan, which back then had had treaties forced on it by basically us, you right. and us and the rest of the European countries, that essentially said foreigners pay no tax and you virtually pay them to be in your country. Huh. So we were doing okay, but even so, Charles couldn't live the life of a young man about town on the wild frontier in what he was getting. So he thought, let's start some little businesses. And he started a business called Philly, uh, Beato and Wergman Photographers with a mad Corsican Greek mate of his who ended up dying in Cairo in suspicious circumstances. <laughs> and between them, they edited the way we all see Japan. Their photos, if you look back at their photos, and if you Google Beato, You'll find a lot of his photos. How do you spell Bierto? B-E-A-T-O. Okay. Yeah. And, and if you Google that, you'll find that the, the, the vision of Japan that they set up in their photography is the way most of us still perceive Japan. Leaving yeah. out the cheap electronics and the Yakuza. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although they did have some Yakuza in their own photos. It's very interesting. But that's, we're digressing and we digress right. beautifully. But we do. So he, he started this business and he, then he thought, what else can I do? And he started a little magazine called the Japan Punch. And I envy the Japan Punch deeply because it was just a little fanzine set up for the expat community so they'd have something that they could read in English. But it was satirical, and nobody had done a satirical magazine in Asia before. And it was so successful that it sold right across Asia for 25 years till he discontinued publication. And it's fabulous. It's like reading Monty Python in, in Victorian times. Wow! And the Japanese got hold of this, obviously, because educated Japanese wanted to learn to speak English, wanted all this new stuff that was coming in, wanted to be able to swank to their neighbors about all the gossip that they knew about the English political <laughs> delegations. So it started selling to the Japanese, and they thought, hang on, all this weird little <clears throat> scratchy line pictures and these satirical comments about rulers and politicians, we like this, we want a bit of this. And people started asking him if he would teach them the Western style of cartooning, which he began to. He introduced huh. speech balloons. Oh. He introduced political cartoons. He introduced satirical cartoons and thereby became the godfather of modern manga. And he also had another string to his bow. He was, like many, many Victorians, he was a very well-taught and very competent fine art painter. So he taught four or five of the greatest names in Japanese art how to paint in Western style. Wow. Began giving lessons. This guy was astonishing, but he was the father of manga, and, and the Japanese appreciate this so much that still, every year, on the anniversary of his death, they go to his grave in the Yokohama Foreign Cemetery, where he's buried, and both fine artists and manga artists come together to burn incense and pray for him. 
because without Charlie Waltman, there would be a manga industry because lots of other comic artists and comic cultures came into Japan. But without him, the manga industry would look different. And I like to think that that's because he started off you know, with that British attitude, satire. Don't respect anything too much. Sarcasm, yeah. irony. Yeah. Stick two fingers up at the government. I mean, Charlie had been in the country like 10 years and people were already being jailed for political dissent. I think that's a measure. <laughs> yeah, he's doing vital work. Holy smokes. That is the greatest story in the world. He's wonderful. And, and, and so, so few people realize that when I started studying anime manga back in 81, there was a general attitude that it was pretty low grade and, you know, not for, not for mass, mass consumption, not worth picking up on. And a few brave scholars changed that. People like Jessica Bow and Sugimoto and, of course, the great Fred Schott. But the general attitude was that you didn't really look at this too much. But there was also an attitude that because Japan had been cut off for 250 years till 1855, that, it, that, that Japanese culture in the 19th and 20th century was isolationist. It wasn't. The moment the doors were opened, the Japanese people wanted everything they could get from the rest of the world. Because like most of us, you know, new stuff is cool. Right. New stuff is really fun. And everybody wants to be a bit of an expert on something exotic. We know fans who want yeah. to be an expert on Japan. Well, they were just the same. Yeah. There were loads of Japanese people there in the 1860s who wanted to be able to say, oh, of course, you know how they do this in France. Oh, yeah. you do? explain. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> and, and so they wanted what, what we've got. We wanted what they've got. There was a huge cultural interchange. The story of manga is not the story of a medium that developed in isolation, bursting on the West and changing everything. The story of Japan and manga is the story of a medium that developed as a result of a very rich, very ancient, very profound culture colliding with Western cultures and what happened as a result. And what happened happened both to the West and to Japan. But, of course, the Second World War was an enormous great knife cutting down on most things in the world and it distorted our views for a long time afterward. I grew up not being able to discuss Japan or anything Japanese in my house because my father who hadn't actually fought in Asia himself but had friends who had and in fact had several friends who didn't come back from the Burma Railroad okay. absolutely hated the Japanese. Right. My father was a very gentle man who hated very few things in his lifetime but he hated the Japanese from experience of his friends. Right. And so I didn't actually start studying Japan until quite late at school when I was given a project to do in history. And my, my history teacher had to write to my father and tell him that I must do this project. He okay. was so adamant. And then, like everybody else, I just thought Japan was cherry blossom and samurai and geisha and cheap electronics. Yep. Um, and it wasn't until I met Steve and started exploring anime and manga with him that I realized what a rich culture the whole of Japan is. So for me, anime and manga was a gateway into the heart of Japan. But I have to remember, and, and luckily I learned this from all the people I met along the way, that anime and manga was also a gateway opening out onto the West and letting Japan look at the West. So that was, that's been wonderful. It's been a blast. That's, you know, it's interesting too, because now what, what I, I haven't read enough manga to know anything, but, uh, what I'm, what I'm told is that it is at every, like you said, it's at every level of society. So, so babies get it. Like oh, yeah. it's, it's the first, you know, it's like their little baby, the golden books. Baby books, yes. Baby books are manga. And so they're about, 
animals and letters and, yes. you know, and life. And feasts and days of the year and foodstuffs because all babies love food. Babies love pictures of food. Yeah. Who doesn't? Yeah. Who, they're little selfies. Yeah, and, uh, so, <laughs> and then, but then there's also like, you know, like teen stories and then, and then there's a great deal of adult content. Oh, yeah, that, there's manga specifically for retired people. Just retired people? Yeah. Okay. Manga about retired people, romance, drama, all, all sorts of stuff. Oh, interesting. Sort of like mingling wrinkles, kind of romantic yeah, exactly. uh, comedy, yeah. kind of awesome. Because yeah. we're just starting to get into that in the movie industry. What I mean, there Best was a bunch exotic marigold hotel, which right? Also the plane coming over, which is oh. a fabulous movie about dying. It is an amazing <laughs> movie about dying. If yeah. you get out there, yeah, and uh, <laughs> and see some British people not die. Yeah, so, but then, I mean, so there's, is there, there's mystery manga, and there's... There's, There there are manga about everything. There's cookery manga. There's manga about playing mahjong. There's manga about electrical engineering. You can buy manga guides to statistics. You can buy a manga that teaches you to do calculus. And it's drawings. It's essentially a graphic novel. It's a graphic novel about calculus. About calculus. I don't say the plot is terrific. Right. It's very useful. At the end of it, you have some information about calculus. All right. Yeah. And and there are also manga based on all kinds of things about Western history, about American history, about European history. One of my favorites is an absolutely beautiful manga story called Emma, a Victorian Romance. Okay. Um, And this is basically the story of an illiterate Victorian girl who's taken in as a maid by uh, an ex-school teacher sure. and taught to read. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, of course, immediately not only makes her overqualified for the work she's doing, but gives her what the Victorians would call ideas above her station. Yes. She learns to read and write, and as a result, her natural qualities of good nature and good humor and, and, and gentleness are allowed to blossom mm-hmm. in the household she's working in. And she falls in love with the son of a very wealthy family who also falls in love with her. And, of course, this is completely unsuitable. Yeah, that can't. Yeah, and, and this, this manga is I know not, that from my romance novel reading. Absolutely. It never yeah. works. But not only is this happening um, in a beautifully researched setting that is magnificently accurate about everyday life. I mean, you, you could learn about Victorian history by reading Emma just by observing the background. But it also includes a lot of the stuff that we've airbrushed out of that history because it doesn't suit us like the fact that the Victorian Empire was a hotbed of racial tension and racial upheaval because, of course, Britain had an empire that spanned the world. Mm -hmm. So educated Indian princes, educated magnates from all corners of the globe, educated... From Africa, yeah. ...were coming into Britain, and very often their parents had, had put together the gold of their country to send their children to a great British school, and they were coming into Britain, were magnificently educated, very cultured, spoke obviously at least two languages, Mm -hmm. um, mingling with a society which immediately said that, you know, wonderful as they might be and marvelous as they might be, you don't go around marrying white girls to guys with black skin. You you, you guys had a similar thing in your own history, of course. Oh, sure. Sure, there's Um, still trouble. Yeah, but, but, you know, it's all that is there in this manga written by a Japanese lady who uh, loves Victorian England. And what is her name? uh, Her name... Okay, but it's called. I often forget names. It's called Emma, a Victorian romance. All right, and that can I can put that in the notes. Yeah, I'll look it up. It's 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 a magnificent story because it foregrounds the characters. It's for, foremost a story of love and personal development and coming to terms with your society. But it's packed with information, visual information, verbal information, story information 
about Victorian England. And you look at this and you could give this to any 14-year-old girl and she would come out having learned about Victorian England by osmosis. Right. Yeah, I mean, I know so many French people who know everything they know about the French Revolution through reading The Rose of Versailles. Okay. Yeah, uh, which is another wonderful manga by Rio Koikeda. Okay. Which is the story of a cross-dressing girl swordsman. Okay. Um, the Rose of Versailles. I want to read that. Rose of Versailles by It's fabulous. Okay. It, it, essentially, Oscar is christened Oscar Francois by her father. Okay. Because she is his seventh daughter and he was desperate for a son and he knows he's not going to have any more because his wife is getting old. So, right. Seventh baby. This is a boy. Okay. It, n- not, he pretends that she's a boy, but she's brought up as a boy. Right. So she becomes like, like Sapphire in Princess Night, Asama Jessica's great manga. She becomes a great swordsman. And a great uh, warrior, a great military commander, a great horseman, a fa- uh, always a man. Nobody ever labels her woman, even though everybody knows she's a woman. Nobody ever considers her in the same way that they consider other women. She's considered on absolutely equal terms with the guys. Mm-hmm. And she goes to court because that's what her noble father expects. And she becomes captain of the guard to, to the Dauphine, who at this stage is the lady who will later become Queen Marie Antoinette. And it's the story of the French Revolution and how Oscar, who is steeped in the best traditions of the French aristocracy, nobility, service, self-sacrifice, courtesy, gentility, good manners, comes to see that the corruption of everything that she holds dear is destroying her country and actually dies fighting for the, the Republican side. Okay. And it, it's, it's beautiful. And drawn amazingly. And drawn amazingly, um, written beautifully, researched fabulously. Ikeda is a great historian. She did a manga about Catherine the Great. Oh, wow. Which is one of the most fabulous pieces of historical research. Oh, oh I think I've found a part of manga that I will be uh, uh, getting involved in. Oh, and another one that you yeah. love, although sadly <laughs> it doesn't. It, Rose of Versailles does exist in translation. Okay. Um, and so does Emma. Okay. But sadly... Um, Ukinomonsho, the seal of the king, doesn't exist in translation. It is one of the longest running manga. It's been, it started in the sixties and it's still going. Wow. It's by a lady called Chieko Hosoda. And this is pure Mills and Boom, pure Harlequin romance. <laughs> a young American girl called Carol falls back through a gap in time into ancient Egypt where she becomes the, the, the beloved of the pharaoh. And of just about every other king of any country who comes into contact with her. Well, she is one hottie. Right. And yeah. she's, she is, uh, she's wanting to, to sleep with nobility. Well, no, no. She's actually a very moral girl. She falls in love with her pharaoh. It's just, oh, okay. you know, circumstances and so on. Oh, sure. Yeah. She jumps, t- jumps time backwards and forwards. Yeah. yeah. All, th- all through, uh, Egypt? Yeah. All- through, e- oh, through Egypt and through several other cultures. But all in the same time era. And all, um, and all that thoroughly researched as well. Like the, the history researched. on it is amazing. Yeah, but, but, but it's, but it's, it's in Japanese. It's, yeah, it's in Japanese, but it's also a fabulous pulp romance. And again, I look at this and I think, why is this not a blockbuster TV series? Yeah. Because it is so made to be a blockbuster TV series. Yeah. Anyone knows anybody I can pitch to, just put me in the, in front of them. Okay. Yeah, it's, it, it's fabulous. Well, I get you, the Dork Forest, you, I live in Van Nuys. It's Los yeah, Angeles. Yeah. Sure. But no, there, there are Van so many stories. There are so many wonderful stories in manga that would make great TV and film properties. Yeah. But um, 
probably because most TV executives don't do a lot of reading anyway and certainly don't do a lot of reading manga. That feels mean and yet uh, accurate. Yeah. Because they're all 23. Well, believe me, most people nowadays don't do a lot of reading. Here in Dorkland, we're different. We are very different. It it is, we are the spookiest of all reading peoples. Uh, We're creeping everyone around us at all times. Very few people average more than six or seven books a year. I mean, can you imagine only reading six or seven books a year? No. How do these people get by? Why do they deal with the voices in their heads? Yeah, exactly. I just got to calm everything down in there by what reading. What do you do with their copious free time? I know they have so much free time. Because yes. here's here's now here's what I like to do. I like to have a book. I like to have a book I'm also rereading. Mm-hmm. I enjoy having a Kindle opportunity yes. if I don't have a book with me. Mm-hmm. And I also like to listen to an audio book sometimes as I drive. Yes. Just because, uh, you know, that means that I might have four or five books going at once. Yeah. But sometimes I'm re-listening to the Audible. Like right now, I'm realistic. So, and the other thing, of course, is there's books for work as well. I mean, how do people ever do a job if they don't read books for work? Oh, right, right. Yeah, I read incessantly for work. I read as much as I can on anime, on manga, on popular culture, but also on history and on politics because it all feeds into the background. Right. But that's not reading. That's work reading. That's work reading. Yeah. So, in an average year, most people I know, mo- mo- most people that that I respect and consider intelligent, read between probably between. 100 and 150 books for fun and uh, maybe the same amount for work because if you don't read you know who are you but there's a lot of people who do read they're they're like they go down a rabbit hole in the internet mm-hmm. and because whenever i meet somebody who says you know i don't read i always say what uh what do you mean you don't read and uh, and then they tell me that they get like two magazines or they 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 back to front on different blogs and different uh yeah. you know there's so much stuff on the internet that they're reading and I'm so I I I tend to cut people some slack when they say oh, that yeah. they don't read a lot of books and stuff but what are you what do you read for fun what do you like do you like are you reading James Patterson Oh I love historical fiction Okay I love historical fiction I, I read enjoy a, history. one of my favorites apart from the Divine Georgette is a lady called Dorothy Dunnett. How do you spell Dunnett? D-U-N-N-E-T-T. Okay. Now, Dorothy Dunnett was married to the editor of the Scotsman, one of our great ancient newspapers, Alistair Dunnett. Okay. And Dorothy Dunnett was a proud and passionate Scot who also had a deep appreciation of most of European history. And she started her career as a thriller writer. She wrote some very successful thrillers, including a great series um, called Dolly and the Nanny Bird about a 1960s chick in swinging Britain who yeah. was a nanny okay. and solved mysteries. Um, okay, I'm reading those. The series where I, I first met her and fell in love with her was her, her Limond Chronicles, which is the story of a young Scottish nobleman in Tudor times, the Tudor times that defeated our darling Georgette, yes. are completely the home of Dorothy Dunning. Okay, These books are huge. It's a six-part series, or as some people like to call it, a double trilogy. Okay. With a fat, fat 350-page-plus books. Wow. With a cast of thousands. And it, the, the Limon Saga ranges from Scotland all the way across to the north of Russia and Alaska, all the way back. Wow. the whole of the politics of the time. And it is just epic. And at the heart of it is this astonishing love story. Mm-hmm. And a, with, with a bratty little kid, like like the yo- a younger version of Phoebe in Sylvester. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, oh, Sylvester's a Georgette Heyer novel. Yes. And an a... even brattier, even more Sylvesterish version of Sylvester. Oh, of Sylvester. As the hero. Right. Sylvester um, Bossy Magoo. Super yeah. bossy. And then. Super bossy, yeah. super noble, super clever, very good looking. Yes. The sort of person whose face you want to slap. Right. Until it brings him in contact with reality. Right. Yeah. Because it's a little arrogant. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and the love story is, of course, the making of, of both characters, but also a wonderful mystery around a very complicated Scottish family story that involves somebody marrying and then her husband being taken by the Corsairs and made to row as a galley slave and then marrying his son to keep her dowry in the family and then finding he wasn't dead after all. Wow. Um, it gets, it gets very convoluted, but fabulous, right. fabulous books, beautifully written, loaded with history. I didn't really understand the history of the Muscovy Company and how we interacted with Sarivan the Terrible until I read Dorothy Dunnett. Right. And I don't, I, those are all words that I know are words. <laughs> so I can't wait until I know about the Muscovies and, but you see, this yeah. is it, reading stuff. Yeah. Reading, and the stuff that people turn their nose up at, historical fiction, romances, right. reading stuff makes you smarter. It really does. Yeah. One of my favorite uh, historical fiction novels that is uh, written by one of the silliest uh, authors to admit that you, re- you read publicly is Louis L'Amour. Oh, wow. He yeah. read. He wrote a book called The Walking Drum. And the walking drum uh, starts uh, somewhere in the British Isles, and it goes through Africa and to India, India. Yeah. and it is uh, during the uh, the Dark Ages and uh, the Middle Ages, and uh, and it's um, I read it in high school, and I learned more about the Middle Ages yeah. than I had known about anything, and uh, than I had previously understood. In so that was a great one. Uh, I do enjoy. This is I, I have recommended this on the show before. It is uh, Daniel Day Lewis's dad. Daniel Dad Lewis. That's it. Uh, uh, Daniel Dad Lewis is what my friend Mike Kaplan calls him. But he wrote under the nom de plume, uh, Nicholas Blake. Yes. And he wrote a bunch of sort of pulpy mystery novels in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s before he became the poet laureate of, uh, the UK. You've got to make a living. And the one thing we know about poetry, and I am also a poet, is right. that you don't make a living. Right. There's none, yeah. He could not have been angrier to have written his first book, uh, with Nicholas, as Nicholas Blake, because the first third of the first mystery of the Nicholas, there, Nigel Strangeways is the name of his Agatha Christie character. And, uh, before we meet Nigel Strangeways, he is furious that he's writing a mystery novel. And he, all the first third of the book is him making fun of mystery novels. Yeah. And then he introduces Nigel Strangeways, and then he falls in love with his own character. And uh, and then 14 books later, yeah. he's like, now this guy's a genius. It's yeah. great. Yeah, we, 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 we do that. And that, of course, became a great trope of, of, of crime fiction. Um, going all the way through into TV, there, there is a wonderful British series, minor but wonderful, called Department S that was made just after The Avengers. I oh, don't yeah? know how many of you know Department S, but Department S is about one 70s? Government, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, late 60s. Okay. Well, the government super departments that set up to solve all the mysteries that those flat-footed plods at the yard <laughs> are still too dumb to solve <laughs> years after Sherlock Holmes showed them how. Mm. Um, but Department S has as a special consultant and occasional visitor the most deliciously camp creation in the swinging 60s, Jason King. Yes. Now, Jason King is a dandy of the first order. He shoots his cuffs to show you his lace. He wears <laughs> high pointed collars that button down. He always oh. believes in being perfectly dressed. Very he lives nice. In Paris. And Jason King is a, <laughs> Jason King is a crime novelist. 
Jason King has created a character called Mark Kane, with whom he is also totally in love. Because uh, Mark Kane is Jason, but without the pratfalls and the comic bits that Jason does okay. all the time. And his question always is, what would Mark Kane do? Wow, what that is the most meta. He lives his life. Oh, that is awesome. It's even more meta than that, because the actor who played Jason King, the great, great Peter Wingard, one of Britain's most yeah. fabulous actors, was while he was playing this wonderfully uber-heterosexual character, mm -hmm. was voted, incidentally, by Australian girls as the man they would most like to lose their virginity to in 1970. <laughs> <laughs> Although presumably not the whole of Australia at once, <laughs> because in one year that would have been a bit much. Are you about to tell me that they were also, uh, that was not to be resolved? It was not to be resolved because <laughs> Peter Wingard has been, as my old history teacher, a very respectable nun in her 70s, used to say, Bent as a nine-bob note. Fantastic. <laughs> Welcome to the Dork Forest, where uh, where sayings from 1967 are still being said. Well, no, uh, that, 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 that's slightly pre-1967, because <laughs> I was in school sometime before that. But oh, fair enough. Bent, bent as a nine-bob note is a very old English bit of slang for someone who's gay. Right. And not bent in the sense of being criminally bent. No. Okay. No. It's a... Uh, he hangs to the left. Yeah. All right. So, uh, or the right, whatever. Gentlemen, yeah. check your pants. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> all right. But, but no, I mean, it, it, meta, meta fictions just go through all kinds of, of, of fictional culture. And I, I find that completely fascinating. Yeah. I love, you know, I mean, the thing, what I, I love your love of reading is so great because there, the, what I like about fiction is that it can be, it can teach us how to live our lives. Mm. And it can give us a way out of like hard situations, like moral situations where you're like, I don't know how I would respond to that. And you're like, well, what Han Solo would do is, and then you would, um, and, and, and you can, it could be science fiction. So you can have moral yeah. issues, but not, nobody's going to get mad because you're not talking about the NRA. You're talking about eh, a version of the NRA, but it's in 2477 and everyone has ray guns. Yeah. So. Yeah, and th th this this is what one thing that anime does very well with Britain, because as as you've probably observed, we have quite a lot in common with Japan. We're a small island empire. Okay, we have a very ancient monarchy. We have an established state religion, which very few people actually belong to, but everybody pays lip service to. Mm -hmm. um, we we are a very traditional country that places a very high value on courtesy and on consideration for others, non respect, and we drink tea. Okay. We are Japan's logical mirror. <laughs> and so J Japan uses Britain as a metaphor for all kinds of things. It's, it's one of those European oh. dream places that are cited right through anime. I mean, the Kaon movie, for example, when they go on their big trip, they could have gone to L.A., they could have gone to Vegas, but they're nice high school girls, and nice high school girls go, don't go to L.A. and Vegas. They go to London. Okay. Yeah, and, and, and they're, they're, What movie it? is that? K the Kaon movie. K-On movie? Yeah. K-On is a very popular anime series based on a, a four-panel gag strip uh, manga. Yeah. And K-On is about essentially a girl band, none of whom have any talent, but who are all super. As a band. <laughs> um, together, they create together something. Together, they create something remarkable. They, they pull in a girl who has never played the guitar in her life, and she turns out to be a natural. She, of course, she so would. Often happens, yeah. so often As so happens. often happens. <laughs> I mean, how many times has somebody said to you, hey, you can play the guitar, can't you? And then suddenly you pick it up and you know what? 
You can. You can. Yeah. Why? It would be the best yeah. if you, if that was something that could just happen. If We're, that, if that yes. was so, yes, it would be fun. Although I don't know, sometimes I think the process of learning, I, I don't laugh, but I did ballet when I was much younger. Um, one reason why I gave it up was that I, I, I learned through a series of, of fairly complicated medical tests that they can do that I was one of the few people in the world who was never actually going to grow tall enough for oh. classical ballet. Oh, really? Um, the optimum height is five six on point. Okay. And I wouldn't quite make that. And also, of course, my body type isn't right for classical ballet. So they said to my mother, and my mother relayed it to me much more brutally than they really relayed it to her. <sighs> She's just not got the body type to get beyond the corps de ballet. So however good a dancer she is, however great a dancer she is, it's core or classical or, or character parts, and that's it. And for me, if I couldn't be the swan queen, you didn't want to. So when did your mom tell you that? I was nine. Oh, good. I'm glad she waited. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, was, it was the right time because the, what, once once you hit nine, um, you start doing point work. They, very few teachers will teach you point work before nine or ten. Okay. Because your feet haven't developed far enough to be broken and bloodied. Oh, fair enough. Um, fair enough. And point work is hell. Point work really is hell. Uh, so many of my friends who went on with ballet. Yeah. Um, you know, you spend, you spend all your time darning, uh, the fresh patches into the insides of your shoes because your feet bleed into them all the time. You spend wow. most of your time with a broken toe one way or another. Dancers' feet. Give a look at dancers' feet. Ballet dancers' feet. Yeah. They are incredibly deformed. I don't want to see them. Now. It's, it's pretty horrific. It's, it's yeah. like the equivalent of foot binding. But instead, right. <laughs> instead of letting you do it on, on a very curved and much truncated foot, they make you leap with the whole body weight on the points of your toes and land. And then just land. Repeatedly. And over an hour and a half of a ballet. And so, and it isn't the shoe. They don't create just, why, why not just create a shoe that has a flat and then... Well, there is a shoe that has a flat toe, but your foot still has to land inside of it. Oh, fair enough. And yeah. it still breaks your foot. Okay. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, actually, very few ballerinas break the upper bones in their foot because the way the foot arches and the tension that takes it, unless you're unlucky enough to have your foot go flat, which creates problems. Mostly the upper bones don't break, but the toe bones break just from impact. Yeah. So ballet, torture, what can we say? What can you say? Here, what I would say is uh, I would like to ask now the elephant in the room, which is manga cross stitch. Ma, that's ma- manga cross stitch. I am a stitcher. I am totally there is embroidery. And uh, Helen McCarthy, ladies and gentlemen, has written a book with a gentleman. Uh, did oh, you write it with? No, I, no, I wrote manga cross stitch all alone by yourself. By oh. myself. I, the, the books I wrote with gentlemen with a gentleman about anime. And we'll come on to that, and also what? how far he can be called a gentleman. Oh, fair. <laughs> well, what about or or did someone else provide some of the patterns? But you did most of the no, patterns. No, I, I I did all the all patterns. the patterns. My, no, my, my, What's my, the name of the book? I'm my, so sorry. Manga cross stitch is 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 my partner did some of the designs. For okay. Me. Um, because um, art, I was taught to draw well enough to know that I don't draw all that. <laughs> well, yeah. th- there's a point yeah. where we all go, oh, I can just do Snoopy, and then well, we're done. Also, I mean, in the, the, the old North of England parlance, why keep a dog and bark yourself? And my <laughs> other half is a superb artist. Okay. So I said to him, I need some designs for this book. What we were trying to do was so many manga cross-stitch patterns, anime cross-stitch patterns, are based on licensed properties that are just ripped off. And as as a writer myself and, and yeah. partner of an artist, I don't like to see people ripping off other artists. It's right. not fair. 
doing an homage, doing your own thing is fair enough, but selling somebody else's work on the internet when you just put it into a charting engine, that's not nice. No. So I thought, let's show people how easy it is to do this yourself and to unleash your own creativity just by understanding how the visual grammar of manga works, understanding how stitching works, and bringing the two together. So we did the book as a project to do that, and I workshop it still in, in various places at various conventions. It's the greatest idea in the world. It's a good idea, and <laughs> I've seen some beautiful work from it, and, and I'm really, really proud of that book. But the problem with working with an artist, as any of you who've ever done it know, is that they are such fussy bastards. They really <laughs> are. Um, Steve, Steve, <laughs> nodding. <laughs> now, Steve, Steve is someone who does beautiful work, but like most artists, he likes to use curves. And when you're working in counted thread needlework, which exists on grids like pixels, curves are not your friend. Right. Curves are so not your friend. Right. Uh, so it, it was an interesting compromise because he'd give, what happens when, when, when you design is very few people design straight onto a canvas or straight onto the grid. Most people draw and then take it into the grid. I like to design directly on the grid because that lets me control the, the whole flow of it better. If you're taking something from a non-gridded environment into a pixel environment, you get automatic mismatches. So what would happen is I would scan in his beautiful designs and he would stand over my shoulder telling me why I was getting the chart wrong until I hit him with something large and heavy and worked <laughs> at it for a bit. And then when he regained consciousness, he'd say, hey, that looks great. What did you do with it? Yes. And what did you do to it? Um, I mean, he did, couldn't be doing all Minecraft. It takes an awful lot of tweaking. It really does, and, and experimentation and patience. Yeah, because it's got to be a lot of square jaws and a lot of, you know. Well, essentially, you're moving pixel by pixel. Wow. Tiny elements of a picture till it all comes into, into line. Okay. And then you're scaling it so that it doesn't lose too much of the curvature, but it can be stitched at a reasonable size. Because you've got to remember that doing cross-stitch, you're working on single blocks, each with an X of, of, of thread inside it. Now, you can't make those too tiny because people have to stitch them. Right. But the larger you make them, the more distortion you get. Okay. So it's it's not always fun. But, it's uh, just like pixels, but with yeah, thread. It's just like pixels, but with thread. Exactly. All right. Or like that, that beadwork that you see people do, but with, but with thread. Right. And then when you back up against it, you can see the big picture. Yeah, and Yeah. Exactly. Well, you can see the big picture. You can see the small picture fairly well if you do it small enough. But I'm, I'm, I'm for the first time ever, because I've stitched since I was like three years old. Okay. But for the first time in my life, I'm going to sell some work. Or I, I'm going to show some work. I hope I'm going to sell some work at Worldcon this year. Okay. At Worldcon. Worldcon. Where, where is that? The London, the, the World Science Fiction Convention is being held in London from the 14th to the 19th of August this year. Okay. Luncon 3. And yeah, it's my local convention. I don't have to pay an airfare to get there. It's, it's in my town. Right. So I thought, let's just be brave and see if I can sell something here. So I've got some of my, my stitched art going in there and some of my haiku art going in there. And that oh, that's fun. great. And then, um, do you have published poetry work that you want to tell people I about? I don't have published poetry work. I do tweet poetry and I've done two poetry books on Smashwords, one of which is raising a trickle of money for the tsunami fund. For the, oh, for oh, good. Um, but I am hoping to put together a poetry anthology if I can find a publisher. Um, haiku is not the most popular form in Britain for publication. Right. But, you know, we're working on it. We'll get there in the end. Sure. And it's uh, Tweetheart4711? Yes. Yes. 
on Twitter. And, um, and my, my, of course, my blog, which is Helen McCarthy, A Face Made for Radio. A Face Made for Radio. I saw that. Yeah, <laughs> and I was which, like, which you can find on WordPress. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a WordPress. And, um, so I like, um, so with, um, okay. And, um, yeah, this has been fascinating. And I, um, it still is. It still is. We have four minutes, I've been yes. told, uh, from the nice man in the hat. Four minutes. In four minutes, uh, we should. I've had some of the worst sex of my life in four minutes. That would, that would do it. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, that's the four minutes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> You're just like, I'm going to need some more prep. Uh, either solo time alone prior to this yeah. engagement, um, or, uh, possibly after, after you're done, yeah. uh, you go get a sandwich. Yeah, I'll, I'll meet really you in a useful thing about rugby teams. <laughs> yes. There are 15 of them. Oh, <laughs> uh, I will say, well, what was I going to tell? What story was I going to let people in on? Oh, I know. The, your mom was nine. Uh, my dad, uh, waited till he, till we were 12 to talk to us, uh, because he's a button pusher and so he never had anything positive to say. And if you say anything, uh, if you try to button push a child under the age of 12, uh, it doesn't stick and yeah. you just have a crying child. So, um, so he would, at the age of 12, he would start saying things like, he would pick fights. He's like, oh. you gotta learn how to argue. And, uh, so he would say things like, uh, poor people should be killed. Discuss. And, uh, dictatorships keep people busy, right? And, uh, <laughs> and then you'd have to hold forth and try to defend yourself on, on, you're like, well, that seems mean. And he's like, don't be ridiculous. What else? And, oh, uh, uh, that never happened in my family because my, my family is Irish and we were arguing from the crate. <laughs> um, everybody in my family talks all the time. You have definitely been plug and play. I've been very pleased yeah. with this interview. Oh, I'm, I'm, this I'm has so been fun. You get a free t-shirt. You get a Dork Forest t-shirt. Oh, wow. Uh, I don't know if you enjoy a t-shirt. I like hoodies. Uh, uh, all right. All right. Well, then you will enjoy it. You get a, uh, I brought some t-shirts. I also have my CD and DVD if you want them. Tomorrow night here at AnimeCon, I'm doing a stand-up show called, uh, This Will Make an Excellent Horcrux. Oh, brilliant. Yes. Mm. And, uh, that's, uh, tomorrow in the middle of the night. Uh, it's, it's at like 1130, I think, upstairs at the Metropolitan. And and uh, AnimeCon, I now am even more now than ever because I read a lot of comic books, but I've never read manga. Oh, so wow. it's the same thing. It's the same thing, yeah, the, but from that, left to right. It's the exact same thing. Well, well, most manga are still done from left to right because you know what artists are. They absolutely hate being flipped. And the reason for that is that how most artists um, see if there's a flaw in their work is they hold it up to a mirror. And so if you try and flip an artist's work and present it that way, they feel as though you're showing everybody their defects all the time. When the great Torrin Smith did um, Blade of the Immortal, he actually cut and repasted printed galleys to get the whole thing running in wow. the proper order. Yeah, I'm going to have you back on. Yeah. Uh, ladies please. and gentlemen, Helen McCarthy, please, thank you so much for doing this show. My hat, my hat, my hat. They're dancing around my hat, my hat, my hat, my hat. Well, what do you think of that? If it looks like a Mexican hat dance and it sounds like a Mexican hat dance, it's most likely a Mexican hat dance. So take off your hat and let's dance. Yay! Oh, my God. We, why don't we just call that as the end of the show?